You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd with you. Just made the move into the second half of the program. Thanks for joining along. 960-960-650-650. Jamie, just before we talk footy worldwide, football CFL style. Was Labor Day the weekend offense returned to the Canadian Football League? Sure kind of felt like that. 51 Montreal put on the board on yep. Friday in a route of Ottawa, and the offense kept coming over the next few games. Yeah, and I saw a lot of people kind of saying, you know, I was not expecting the Montreal-Ottawa matchup to be the game where offense exploded in the CFL. But right now it looks like a little bit of a turning point because you're right. Throughout the rest of the weekend, there were some point, some big point totals put up as well. Yeah, not massive, obviously, between Winnipeg and Saskatchewan. The Riders had their most dismal performance offensively of the season. Winnipeg defense came to play, but the Labor Day games, Hamilton and Toronto put up a whole bunch of points yesterday. Much to the chagrin of some of the Stampeders fans who will be listening to our program today on the eastern side of the Rockies. Edmonton came back, and after that lengthy COVID hiatus, all of a sudden found their form, Trevor Harris. And this has been part of the story with Calgary all season long, though. Dave Dickinson said it last week. He basically laid it on the table for his team. Look, if we don't get after Trevor Harris, he will carve you up. And carve he did just two yards short of 400 yesterday. Well, and Dave Dickinson has been very upfront about needing to add talent to the team, right? And specifically on the defense. We talked about that last week where, you know, it's cut day in the NFL and Dickinson's out there saying, yeah, we got to go find some guys. We need to add talent to this team. Edmonton's been a weird team this year, obviously, with the lengthy hiatus and then having to cut Jacob Ruby because he falsified or misrepresented his vaccination status, whatever the nuts and bolts of that story end up being. He's not eligible for them. Nobody's signing him in the Canadian Football League this year. We're going to talk about this somewhere later in the program today. One of the things people will remember from last year's COVID season in the National Football League, the Denver Broncos having to play a game with a receiver <laughs> who played quarterback in college but was on their practice roster, but all four of their quarterbacks, sorry, you're not playing this weekend, and they had to go get a, a wide receiver and say, dude, you know how to take snaps, so we're going to need you to take some of those snaps this weekend. He started a game against the New Orleans Saints. They ultimately lost. He wasn't very good, but he was game for doing so. More information has come out on that story here over the last 24 hours, and now you understand even more why the NFL did this to the Denver Broncos. Yeah, it, it's it's not just that they violated protocols, but there was an element of dishonesty as well, right? And trying to not just skirt the rules, but then lie about it that I think really caught the NFL's attention. Yeah, we'll get you that story a little bit later on in the program. We do want to turn our attention back to the beautiful game where Canada is concerned momentarily we will have a former Canadian international actually captained Canada at one point. He is Terry Dunfield, one soccer color commentator. Now he is an academy coach with TFC, and he joins us today on Rent and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. How are you today, Terry? What's up, Scott? Really good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you very much for being on. I'm not sure you celebrated on the weekend the way you celebrated in scoring the Whitecaps inaugural match 10 years ago, but you were probably jumping out of your chair a little bit with what happened with Canada. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had a right go to 10 years ago, but uh, celebrating the performances, I, I think uh, we're a little bit unlucky to be sat on two points. Uh probably uh, maybe could have four at this point. But I think big picture, we're okay if we beat El Salvador tomorrow night. 
You've played for this side, and you know growing up what the reputation of Canada's side was. Well, let's hope we get a goal, and we defend really well, and we'll play hard. Like that That's what it was growing up in this country, and you know it as well as I do. It is a different time now. When did that change? When did this new wave of, hey, we can attack, we can score, we can compete offensively, when did that get ushered in? Come on, man. You're describing my whole era. Uh, <laughs> but, it, but it really was that. Maybe... I'd add it in, give it to Dero and see what he can do. Um, but yeah, that, that was our identity back then is, is be difficult to be. And, and now it's uh, like, how do you fit all these weapons into the team? And uh, it, it almost came out of nowhere. Uh, we just have so much young talent that's exciting, that's dynamic, that loves to attack. And uh, it's, it's just so much fun to watch. And probably the hardest part for John Herdman is, how do you bring it all together? Um, and and the, the, it's not just two, three players we're talking about. We're talking about seven or eight very good young attacking players. And, and I think that depth is going to be important to this World Cup qualifying campaign. Well, and first and foremost among those young, exciting players, Terry, is Alfonso Davies. That's, that's <laughs> not taking anything away from the other players, but he has just been electric so far in these first two games. Now, I know there's questions about his health going forward. There's some reports out there that he might be way, might be on his way back to Germany. We can get into that, but just from what you've seen from Alfonso Davies, when he can go out there and be clearly the most dangerous, the most talented player on the pitch, what does that do for the rest of the team's spirits and their belief to have a talent like that on your side? I think we've got the best player in CONCACAF, and, and I still think he's getting better. Uh, I, I think it gives the group a, a huge lift that you've got a game changer, somebody in basketball in the fourth quarter that you can just give the ball to and uh, they can make a play. And, uh, you know, I've been fortunate to watch a couple of Canada's training sessions and you see him out there and he's just on another level. He's so quick. His final product's coming and, um, man, we're, we're just so lucky to have uh, Alfonso Davies. You played overseas, Terry, and you played in big international competitions. And when you watch Davies, like obviously none of us have been out there against the likes of him, but you can see the look on some of the defenders' faces. Like we read the scouting report, we've watched this guy, we know he's good. And then he goes by them, and there's that moment of, I don't know what to do with this guy. I just don't have the skill set. Did you ever feel like that on the pitch? And if so, when was that moment for you where you're playing against a, a player you knew was great, but you felt ill-equipped to deal with him? Ooh, good question. Uh, my my kind of take on that was I'd never really leave the center circle. I'd kind of stay posted up in the middle and d didn't really want to be exposed out wide. But uh, I thought Honduras did a pretty good job with their double-triple teaming at times. Um, probably the best way and the bravest way to defend a player like him is to not allow him to get starting that get started but the problem with that is is you now need to get really tight to him and, and you're leaving some space in behind and the goal against the u.s is a great example the fullback got really tight to him gave up that affordance in behind and it was exploited and all of a sudden it's 1-1 when kyle laren sticks it in so it's, it's so difficult to defend and then don't forget, on the other side of the field, we have Tejon Buchanan, we have Richie Larea. So there's there's just weapons galore everywhere. Yeah, as you mentioned, plenty of weapons on this Canadian team, Terry. And, you know, if they aren't able to have Alfonso Davies in the side tomorrow when they face El Salvador, because they, they have all those other exciting young players, do you still look at this and say, that should be three points at home against El Salvador? It has to be. 
for, for us to kind of come through these games in September, uh, we have to beat El Salvador if, if we're for real. And, and, and that's got to be the clear objective. I expect us to have a ton of the ball. And El Salvador have been very well organized through the first two games. They haven't conceded a couple of nil-nil draws. Uh, I think we'll have a lot of the ball. So, so there might not be as much space to exploit. So maybe a junior Hoylet coming into the side, working in gaps and tight spaces might help unlock uh, a, a very good El Salvador side defensively. One of the, I think, things we were all anticipating coming into this stage of qualifying was that, mm-hmm. you know, John Herdman, he has so much talent in the squad to work with that he can really change his lineups and change his tactics match to match based on what's needed for that specific opponent. I think we've we've seen that so far, you know, even in just the first two games between against Honduras yep. and the United States. What kind of tactical adjustments are you expecting to see tomorrow when they take the pitch against El Salvador? Uh. Yeah, I think we got to give a shout out here for her to Herdman and that one of his superpowers guys is he's like five steps ahead. And I think he uh, recognized to navigate through CONCACAF, Canada have got to become an adaptable team and he's going to have the personnel to execute that kind of identity. And he's been doing this for a long time and it makes us very difficult to scout. Um, some of the adjustments maybe for tomorrow might be us taking a little bit more risk, really getting maybe our fullbacks high, maybe less players behind the ball, less balance. I don't think El Salvador are going to hurt us on the counterattack. And, and, and maybe a little bit less detail in and around the box, just putting the ball into good areas for us to go and attack. It might not be pretty, uh, but we're kind of between the sticks, and it might be a counterpress or a repress or a hunt to get the ball again to break through El Salvador. It doesn't have to be, you know how Arsenal has that perception of they want to score the perfect goal. Uh, it's okay if we don't score the perfect goal. Let's just put that ball into areas that hurt them. Terry Dunfield, one soccer color commentator, also a former Canadian international. He joins us today on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You talked about being adaptable and Canada got its first taste of this level of qualifying in that first match against Honduras. And it's a different <laughs> style and they use different tactics what is the lesson that Canada should have learned from that game that they can carry forward against El Salvador tomorrow? Ooh, it, it's going to be a long journey. We're, we're not going to qualify in one game. Um, when we create chances, we have to take them. Same as against the U.S. Uh, we probably should have had two or three goals. I think if we score early against Honduras, maybe El Salvador on Wednesday, it could easily turn into three or four. El Salvador aren't, aren't as fresh as us. Their 11 have pretty much played every minute so far. So take our chances early on. Uh, respect our opponent if they get into good areas. We don't necessarily have to win the ball back right away. It actually sets up a nice counterattack for us. And, uh, you, you know, we just have to find a way um, to, to, to leave BMO Field with three points uh, tomorrow night. There have been a lot of comparisons to Canada's men's basketball team, which I felt should have been good enough to qualify for the Olympics this year with the amount of NBA talent, and it feels like Canada's in a similar spot. Do you consider it a great accomplishment here? Like, hey, they're punching a little out of their weight class if they qualify in this group, or do you see enough talent here that, no, that should be the expectation, that should be the standard with this team? Uh, I'm not an expert on our Canadian men's basketball team. I can talk raps all day. (laughs) Uh, but um, I'd say expectations are so high, guys, because we we crushed the first round of World Cup qualifying in June. 
Uh, as the tournament went on, uh, the Gold Cup, we could have actually gone on and win it. We were outstanding against Costa Rica, Mexico. So with expectations so high, um, it was always going to be tough. I still think we're getting better. I still think our ceiling is, is higher than what it is. And as we continue to grow through uh, this qualifying campaign, uh, we, we could do some damage in Qatar, not to get too far ahead of ourselves. So what I'd say is we're still a young team. We're still getting better. I think that we're going to have our ups and downs as we've seen. Um, and I'm going to keep saying it. If we take three points tomorrow night, we're, we're tracking really well. So as mentioned, you are a youth coach with the TFC Academy team as well. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of the pipelines that we've seen in the last number of years. You played in the MLS. You've seen Canadian players grow of that. We've got the CPL. How important are those pipelines, even though they're not the top leagues in the world, how important are those pipelines for creating sustained success for our Canadian national team? Yeah, I think you nailed it there, sustained success. And, and how do we do that in Canada? That's a huge, huge question that we're still trying to figure out. And our landscape is very different to the rest of the world. There's not really a, a playbook, but having so many different pathways, I, I, I think it's important. If you speak to any pro, their journey to the to their top level was, was very different. So whether it's CPL, an MLS academy, a private academy, playing for your provincial team, playing for a club team. Uh, there's now more opportunity uh, for guys, and, and I think things are changing really nicely on the women's side as well. There's, there's big stuff to come on the back of that gold medal and all the hard work they've been doing for years. Hey, Terry, still on the, the subject of the CONCACAF qualifying, you know, yep. I wanted to get your perspective on their opponent over the weekend, the USA, uh, who were they, they were able to draw with in the United States. You know, full credit to Canada for the performance, but I also know that a lot of American supporters of that team are frustrated with the early results they're seeing, right, with two draws in two matches. What did you see? What have you seen so far from this version of Team USA? I think it's awesome. They're they're in turmoil. Their media are coming from them. <laughs> Players are being sent home uh, for for lack for discipline issues. So I, I think that you know that's good for us. I think Mexico will cruise qualifying. So those second and third or third and a half spot or whatever we're going to call it will be the ones that are up for grabs. So I think it's good for us. If I'm a U.S. fan, I see my team's good in transition. You know, maybe a channel run can hurt Canada kind of down the sides of the center backs, but I thought we did well to have three center backs, so we were comfortable there. They're just a little bit vanilla right now. Um, they're predictable in possession, and, and for Greg Berhalter, it's it's a pretty deep squad. Uh, there's lots of quality out there, so uh, he, he's got some work to do, man. Well, and look, I know every team has only played two games so far. We're still very early in the process. But, you know, to your point, is the lesson overall that, okay, Mexico, they're they're going to do their thing. They're going to be fine. But between the other seven teams, it feels like it's a lot closer than maybe we were expecting going into it, right? With the USA getting off to a slow start with some of the other results early on. I mean, do you expect that to continue for, for it to be just a very, very tight race all the way through the end of this process? Yeah, I'm a bit surprised. I, I, I'd agree with that. There, there's definitely some spanners in the work with three games in eight days, the effects of COVID and travel, playing away from home. Some stadiums are packed, others aren't. Uh, some leagues aren't allowing players to come. So there's, there's, yeah, there's, there's going to be surprises. I think Panama's result in Jamaica, beating them 3-0, was, was a little bit of a surprise with so much quality in the Jamaican side. So 
uh, yeah, it's, 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 we're in it for the long haul. I think uh, keeping an even keel is, is going to be important. And, uh, yeah, that, that'd be kind of my outlook on it, big picture. I think Mexico do run away with it. I didn't see a lot of calm. I saw chaos between Brazil and Argentina as that match started and then quickly was stopped and ultimately put off on the weekend because of COVID concerns and players not filling out documents and not even supposed to be there. Obviously, you didn't play during the COVID era and everything that we're going through right now. What is the wildest scene you've ever been a part of where you just had no idea what was happening on the pitch or what was about to happen next? Ooh, good question. Uh, probably... I probably my debut for Man City, we played Chelsea and it was the last game of the season and all the fans, like 40,000 people ran on the field and stripped the players of all their kit. It's like my <laughs> first ever game. I'm like, what's going on here? Uh, like, this is, is this normal? So that was pretty crazy. Uh, the other one would be 2011, 2012 World Cup qualifying for us to get to Brazil. We're away in Panama. Uh, the Panama Federation, I believe, threw a party outside our hotel for 10 straight hours. There's fireworks, rave music. Uh, it was crazy. Um, so that was a little bit tricky. Like, what's going on here? Welcome to CONCACAF. We're actually living it. This is this is real, guys. Um, we ended up getting an okay result. But that was, uh, yeah, that wasn't, yeah, that was a bit strange, I'd say. Okay, we all talk about how different <laughs> the atmosphere is and all of the, the obstacles that present for the Canadian team when it will go to places like Honduras and and El Salvador throughout the course of this CONCACAF qualifying. So does that yeah. put you on the side of, okay, when Costa Rica comes here in November and Mexico comes here in November, yeah, let's play those games at Edmonton and see how much they like. Oh, yeah, my heart probably says that. My head's probably saying uh, Vancouver might not be a bad spot for those games. And, and trust in our football. Like, our team's really – it's different to what it used to be. Like, our guys can play these guys off the park. So I think having good conditions would suit us. I'd, I'd back our guys' ability. Um, and when you talk about adversity, and I, I think this team's been through so much already. You know, it was a little bit humbling to have to go through the first round of World, quali World Cup qualifying, going into Haiti with COVID out of control – experience of, of coming through that gold cup missing a couple players so i think all the adversity that these guys have been through actually sets them up nicely for when it gets hard in in, in this campaign like going down one nil away in nashville in front of nearly forty thousand, or honduras going up one nil at home I, I didn't see any panic from the guys um and what i'd say is let's you know the better the conditions i think they actually suit us because We've, we we have one of the most dangerous sides in CONCACAF. It's a really good point that you make. Sense. You know, it makes absolute sense. And I'm going to dovetail off that at the end, but we'll let you go because you're a busy man. I talked about all the hats you wear, Terry. Thank no, you very no, much. It's my thank, pleasure. Thank you very much for doing this day. You're doing a great job on the commentary as well. We'll look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks, team. Speak soon. Bye. You as well. That is Terry Dunfield, former Canadian international, played, as you heard, over in the Premier League. He played for... Vancouver he played for Toronto in MLS as well and it's a good point that he makes there Jamie and maybe that's part of the mindset that needs to change I asked him the question because it's been an obvious one on people's minds okay when you're scheduling those games against these teams from Mexico's case the much warmer part of North America Costa Rica's case all right we're getting down to South America make it more difficult for them but to Terry's point look if you've got a skilled team that you think can play a more skilled game 
give them more favorable yeah. conditions. Don't don't for a lack of a better term, dumb the game down. Yeah, don't muck it up, right? That might be actually playing into the hands of some of the, you know, quote-unquote lesser sides in CONCACAF, right? Yes, there's the elements to deal with, but it could also actually frustrate the offensive talent that Canada has to work with. I like his point about Vancouver there, right? Why not play in an environment where you know the conditions are going to be pristine and you know that your attackers are going to be able to do their thing? It's it's Look, I'm not saying right off the idea of playing somewhere like Edmonton, right, and trying to you know gain an advantage that way, but it's an interesting point he brings up. Yeah, Mexico feels a little different than Costa Rica in yes. that regard. Yes, right? like, absolutely. As far as skill level goes, but I would love to see it and maybe it's it's too much to ask two months from now, Jamie, but I would love to see it where we get to a point where we're not worried with teams that have an incredible following like Mexico that they're going to drown out the Canadian supporters at these matches that are held on our side of the border, that that we have enough confidence in our supporters as well as our Canadian yeah. team that, yeah, okay, hold it in a bigger place. That's okay if, if there's a contingent that comes and supports the opposition, but the vast majority will be there cheering for a result and perhaps three points against some of these bigger teams whereas in the past that felt like a pipe dream yeah and I'm not sure we are there with Mexico I think we should be there with every other team in the confederation Mexico is just so well supported right they have such passionate fans that I get the sense if we did play Mexico let's say at BC Place here in Vancouver you know there would be a massive massive contingent of Mexican fans and it might do exactly what you're saying drown out the Canadian sport to a certain degree but against the other sides in this tournament I don't I don't think that should be as much of a concern anymore. Yeah, I was at the last one between Canada and Mexico yep, that was me held too. on the West Coast and yeah, they were drowned out by the Mexican supporters. <laughs> oh, were, yeah. were the were the Canadian supporters. But again, there wasn't a realistic expectation of a win. There was no, that the was a there was yeah. a hope of a goal. That was a very different version of the Canadian men's national team than we're seeing now. We will roll on with the program. Been promoing it all morning. It happens next. The assistant general manager of the Carolina Hurricanes, the team that went out and made an offer sheet make good. Eric Tulski joins us next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. We have been all over the board with our topics today. But the weekend called for it, Jamie. Like the topics of interest, not just, hey, can we make something of this? Just with what people were watching from the offer sheet, which we're going to get into here in just a couple minutes with the Carolina Hurricanes assistant GM Eric Tulski, to Canada soccer, to baseball, U.S. Open. Like there was so much happening this weekend. I felt scattered and enthralled as a sports fan all at the same time. It was great. It's actually been a pretty incredible six weeks for, you know, Canadian sports specifically, right? We always think about this as the dead time on the calendar. But if you stretch back to the Olympics and then what's happening in tennis, our soccer team, women's hockey at the World Championships, you know, the Blue Jays getting back into it now. I know it's not Canadian, but there's a lot of followers across Canada. It's been a really remarkable six weeks or so of sports. You're right, and there's no let-up right now if you are a diverse sports fan. If if you're just kind of waiting for the NFL and for hockey, well, you wait a couple more nights for the NFL and you wait a couple more weeks for hockey to get going again. But if you're as diverse a sports fan as I know you are, and certainly I am, Jamie, well, there's no let-up today because you no. got Canadians on court at the U.S. Open. That's must-watch because both Leilani Fernandez and Felix Auger-Aliassime, they're trying to get into the semifinal of the U.S. Open. You've got the Jays and the Yankees going head-to-head. And this past weekend, 
for me, was the first real one where not only are you watching your team, you got to flip over to other games. How's that yeah. going between the Red Sox and the Rays? Well, what are the Mariners doing tonight? I got to check in on that game as well. It was the first real weekend where that hit. Yeah, it feels like the Jays are legitimately in a pennant race now, or at least a playoff race. I, I know pennant has different connotations in baseball, but you're right. Where you are, you know, that game ends against the Yankees. And it's immediately, okay, let's see if the Rays can finish off this comeback against the Red Sox, right? As you said, tuning in for the Mariners against the Astros. And then you've also got, you know, some great uh, some great baseball happening in the NL, right? We talked about the NL West race with John Morosi a little earlier. That's fantastic between two of the best teams in baseball. So there's a lot going on to hold your attention to Major League Baseball right now. And then percolating in the background, if you will getting some restricted free agents under contracts. There's a yep. couple of big ones on the West Coast. I've said it time and time again, and maybe we'll get to puck drop, and I will be proven completely wrong a month from now. I still think Calgary's doing something. I still think there's something out there for the Flames to do that is more aggressive than what we've seen this summer. This question comes in from Brian in Poco with the offer sheet going down and Cuck and Yemi headed to Carolina now. What if Ottawa or Buffalo or Detroit makes an offer sheet to Pedersen? They have the cap space. If I was the GM of those teams... I would do it. And maybe they've tried, Brian. And it's a point that we've made time and time again. Maybe they've talked to Pedersen's agent and said, we'd be willing to do this. Would your player be willing to sign that? The player has to sign. And that's part yep. of this. And it's a part that we often forget. We castigate general managers for not putting offer sheets. But we'll probably never know about offer sheets that were either speculated on or put in front of somebody that the player or the agent said, thanks, but no thanks. And with Ottawa and Buffalo specifically, you know, are those attractive destinations that would make the player want to put pen to paper with those franchises? Also, you know, there's financial questions in both cities. Would they be willing to part with the draft assets needed to get it done? You know, there's a lot that goes into it, and there's a lot of reasons why. You can, you can look at the cap space and say, hey, go make the deal. There's a lot of reasons why it might not make sense for both parties. And rarely does it go through. Rarely do we see offer sheets. And then when one goes through, as a hockey fan, it does feel like manna from heaven. I'm not sure if it felt exactly that way for the assistant general manager of the Carolina Hurricanes, but he can tell us next. Eric Tulski joins us right now in Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Eric, thank you very much for making time today. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I am very well, and thank you very much for asking. What was it like waiting for this process to conclude? Yeah, I mean... I think we were all on pins and needles waiting to see what would happen. This, you know, We have been watching Esperi for a long time. We've had 16 different scouts file reports on him, and he's a player we really wanted. Uh, we tried for a while to work out a trade, and when that didn't work out, we went the offer sheet route and then spent the next week waiting to see what would happen. Ultimately, what do you personally believe the ceiling is for Jesperi Kakanyemi as a player in the uh, in the National Hockey League? Uh, his ceiling is very high. I mean, he's an extraordinarily skilled player who you watch him, and every time he touches the puck, he puts the team in a better spot than they were before. And whether any player hits the ceiling remains to be seen. There's a bet here on his continuing development but we think he can easily be a top six center and maybe a very good, you know, sort of top half of that group. So obviously you only have him under contract for one year at present time. It does give you the ability to re-sign him at some point during this contract. 
as you guys said on the weekend, he's going to start on the wing this year. What does that transition process look like? Is there a timeline you would associate with it back to the middle? Uh, I don't think we have a timeline on anything. We will play it out and see how things go. Um, we, he will start on the wing because we have a good deep center group, but there are always injuries. We'll see how players fit. We'll see what happens over time. I think we would be very comfortable with him at center. He's a natural center who we think will be there in time and for a long time. But with the roster we have right now, the the place where we had the easiest opening for him to slot in was on the wing. Eric, you mentioned that this is a player you've been following. The the Carolina Hurricanes have been following for a long time. You talked about all the pro scouts who have filed reports on him. What was the internal process and the internal dialogue like in your front office before deciding, you know what, we have to do, we have to think a little bit outside of the box to go and try to get this player into the fold? Yeah, so we're an extremely collaborative organization. I think up and down the group, we get opinions from everyone we can, from coaches to pro scouts to amateur scouts to people in management, you know, across the board. Everybody was thinking about what would make sense here and what could work. And, uh, you know, the, across the group, there was a pretty strong consensus that this was a player who could really make us better. And the opportunity to acquire someone this early in his career with this much runway ahead of him just doesn't come along very often. And so we put all of our creative energy into figuring out how we could make that happen. You know, you talk about the upside that Jesperi Kakanemi has. Obviously, he was drafted third overall by the Montreal Canadiens, so there, that tells you something about his upside to begin with. You know, I think there was maybe a perception from the outside looking in that his development wasn't proceeding as they had hoped for in Montreal. When you're trying to evaluate a player in another organization, what are those things that you look for that make you say, you know what, I think we can get more out of him if we bring him into the fold? Yeah, I think it's difficult to evaluate development because we don't know what he was being asked to work on or how that was going. And he may not have put up the point totals yet that people were hoping he would have, but he may have been developing a lot of the details in his game that they wanted him to focus on. And so from the outside, it's kind of hard to say exactly what it is he's working on or how that's going. What we can say is we see tools and skills there that we think will translate into a player who will be effective for us. And uh, we see a lot of the abilities in just the way he sees the ice and the way he can make plays, the combination of skill and hockey sense, we think will make him very effective for us over time. Um, And so that's what it was that attracted him to us. Eric, this is the first successful offer sheet that we've seen in the NHL in quite some time. From your perspective as a, an assistant general manager in the league, why is it you think that we don't see more teams go this avenue or, or at least more successful offer sheets we don't see them in the NHL? It's not easy to do. Um, I mean, we, we had to pay a price that I think a lot of people looked at and thought was a lot for what the player had done so far. And we did that because we really, we think he will provide value on that. We think there's a great opportunity here. Um, but we, you know, the CBA sets compensation levels based on the salary. It would have been a first and a third round pick in compensation for anywhere from about 4.1 million to 6.1 million. 
And we felt like we had to go right to the top of that band to give ourselves a chance of getting him. And so that's not an easy thing to do in the first place. You have to have the cap space to do it. You have to be willing to give up the draft pick. You have to have a team that makes sense where that player will make a difference for you. And I, I just don't think that combination of events comes around very often. Eric Tolsky, the assistant general manager of the Carolina Hurricanes, he joins us today on Rintu on Sermon with Jamie Dodd. The financial situation, it does it does not come around, as you mentioned. It is rare to find all of the elements necessary for an offer sheet to happen come to fruition. Have you considered offer sheets before? Have you been close as an organization to extending offer sheets before? Uh those are two different questions. We <laughs> consider them all the time. And, you know, we, we want to make our team better. And we every year think about everything we can. We don't leave any stone unturned. Um, I think this is the first one we've been anywhere close to signing in the time that I've been here. And again, that gets back to it being hard to find the confluence of events that makes it make sense for the team. It's exciting for all of us as a hockey fan. Is it ex- was it exciting for you? Was there a rush when you guys said, all right, we're doing this? I mean, uh, I think everything we do gives me a little rush. I wouldn't <laughs> be in this business if I didn't find it fun to try to build a winning team. Um, you know, this was a big move for us, and I think we've been an aggressive team that has made a lot of big moves, a lot of attempts to make our team better over the last few years, and I think every one of those gives us a rush. And no question you've been active this offseason as well. One of the areas on your team that some people didn't understand and certainly criticized you for, the way you handled the goaltending situation. Can you walk us through the thought process of moving on from Alex Najelkovic and bringing in Frederick Anderson and Antti Ranta this year and reshaping your crease? Yeah, I mean, we uh, we feel like our team's going to be very good this year. And we wanted to put ourselves in a position where we had experience in net and people who um, had been there before had proven that they could play a full heavy workload for over the course of a year. You know, uh, Razek and Nadelkovich were great for us, and I don't want to knock anything they did, but we felt like this swap puts us in a better position going forward. You know, Eric, as as Scotty kind of alluded to there, I think the Carolina front office has has developed a reputation for, you know, willingness to be aggressive, to try some different strategies that maybe other teams around the NHL aren't necessarily willing to try. How much of that starts from, you know, having the backing of ownership to do those things and, and, and having an owner who's willing to be aggressive with an offer sheet, who's willing to try some of the different things that the front office uh, has ideas about? Yeah, Tom's part of everything this organization does. He wants to understand our reasoning, make sure everything we do is well thought out. I think this the third straight year we've entered the season expecting to operate above the salary cap, and that makes it possible for us to pursue some opportunities like this. Um, but, you know, part of what comes with that is he wants to make sure he understands the reasoning behind it. And if he sees that it's something we're doing for the right reasons and in a way that can make the team better, uh, then he will have no problem with it. You know, a word you used a little earlier in our conversation was collaborative to describe the decision-making process in the Carolina front front office. And, 
you know, I think we're getting to a point in the NHL where people, whether it's fans or media, are, are starting to pay more attention to the way front offices work beyond just the general manager and the way front offices function. And I, I would point to the example of Seattle making a point to hire people from different backgrounds and get those different perspectives in there. You know, from your perspective, you, you've worked your way up in the Carolina front office now to be an assistant general manager. You know, you, you direct the, the pro scouting group. You have responsibilities, you know, not just as an analyst, but as a manager now. From your perspective, what are those elements that a front office needs to have to function at a very high level in the NHL? Yeah, I mean, I would say in any organization, not just in the NHL, you need a management group that understands every part of its business. And part of that is not just having experience with it, but also talking to the people in the different functions and understanding what they see. Um, and whether that's hockey or any other industry, the people who are in each individual department are going to have their own perspectives and are going to have different things that they see from the day-to-day operations about what your organization needs, what it could do better, where it could improve, and making sure as a front office that we are hearing those perspectives and involving them in our decision-making is very important to us. Eric Tolski is the assistant general manager of the Carolina Hurricanes. He joins us for a few more minutes on Rent to and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. As somebody who worked closely with Ron Francis, who's now the general manager in Seattle, how did the expansion process play out for you real-time compared to about the way you would have been predictive about it? Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to predict what they're going to do because I didn't – they were having conversations with every team about – what players they might be able to trade after the draft or who they might want to, who might want to give them something to control what, uh, who was picked from their team or whatever else. And so without knowing how those conversations were going or what opportunities were available to them beyond what was on this list of players who were available, uh, it becomes really hard to project what they're going to try to do. Um, so we tried to do some scenario planning and tried to put ourselves in their shoes and you could come up with a few very different approaches to the draft. And uh, each of those would have had implications for what they would want from us. Um, and ultimately, what we ended up deciding was we couldn't try to play their team for them. We needed to just play our own hand. And so we made our selection, our protection list based on what we thought would put us in the best position. Seattle, like your franchise, has heavily invested in analytics, and every every team around the National Hockey League certainly has money in it, some some to greater degrees than others. Obviously, you've been very closely associated with anal- analytics, and I think most of our listeners know that as well, and yet we still find ourselves, despite being in 2021, where we know how useful they are, we still find ourselves in this place where we have these arguments in the hockey fraternity about whether they're beneficial or not, and and the eye test versus analytics. From your perspective, Eric, what do people misinterpret or misunderstand about analytics in general? Uh, I think the thing that is my biggest pet peeve these days is how often you hear the question, what do the analytics say about this player or this deal or whatever? And that implies that analytics are some monolith that has a single answer, when in fact, there's a whole bunch of different pieces of data you might look at and different analysts might value different things differently, might think one particular way of looking at it is particularly important. 
Um, and so it's really not a question of what the data says. It's a question of what the analyst says based on what they see in the data. And I think people underestimate the extent to which it's still an art to think through how the different pieces of information fit together. And, you know, no one thing is really going to give you a conclusive answer. And having that ability to weigh different pieces of information against each other, and that includes stats and scouting reports and whatever else you might have, um, I think fitting all of that together is really the job of a management group. I certainly did not go to Harvard or Berkeley, but I can relate to having a degree from a post-secondary institution that on the surface would not appear to have much to do with what I do now for a living. You have a scientific background from those universities and what you did prior to getting into hockey. What is it about this sport? What is it about this profession that lured you into it despite the options that would have existed for you? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of fun. It's basic thing right like i so my previous career i was in chemistry and i like chemistry and i enjoyed it but i didn't set up a chemistry lab in my garage and do chemistry in my spare time i was playing with hockey stats on the side in my spare time and getting the opportunity to have someone pay me to do something that i was doing just for fun that that's a rare treat um and i haven't regretted a day of it it's uh it's really a neat opportunity to get to work in this business. So what was the team and who was the player that really turned you on to the sport as a, as a young person? So I grew up in Philadelphia. I was a Flyers fan as a kid. Um, I, you know, I started following the team in kind of the mid eighties. Um, and, you know, I don't know that there was any one player that stood out for me, but I would say certainly I feel fortunate now to get to be in an organization with Rod Brindamore. I imagine you do. And what happens when Ron Hextall's on the other line? Is that sort of a surreal moment still to this day? Yeah, I mean, it is very um, hard to shake that sense of like, hey, there's one of those guys I used to follow when I was a kid. Um, you know, it, you do get a little bit used to it, but you never get completely used to it. Well, and the good news is Ron doesn't have a goal stick in his hand anymore, so you're a little safer when you're having those conversations, Eric. That's, that's right. Thank you very much for your time today. I've called you many, many times. One of the most interesting teams in the National Hockey League, and that proved itself once again this past week. Thank you once again. Enjoy the rest of your day, and I look forward to doing this again soon, Eric. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That is Eric Tulski, often regarded as the brains behind the operation, which is, as he said, probably unfair both yeah. to him and to the rest of the organization, which is extremely collaborative. But we've heard this name around Carolina for quite some time, and he has certainly helped shape the direction of that franchise. He would appear to be a general manager in waiting, whether it's there or somewhere else. And he obviously has the ear of Tom Dundon as well. Yeah, you heard how he spoke about the owner there, Dundon, in Carolina and the buy-in and the resources that he affords to them and also how involved he is as well. He wants to, okay, I'll give you the resources to go out and make a move, but I want to understand the reasoning behind it so I can evaluate it. And you're right, you know, thought of as kind of an analytics guru, which is obviously how he got his, his start, but... You know, he's not just an analyst for the Carolina Hurricanes anymore, right? He's an assistant general manager. He's running their pro scouting department. He's running their analytics department. And I thought he had some really interesting perspective on what makes a an, an NHL front office tick and what can make it succeed from a culture perspective. 
No question. And I also love the way he outlined how they came to this decision. Look, we tried to trade for the player. We tried to trade for the player. We couldn't find a deal. And as Elliot Freeman laid out to us last week, they let Montreal know this is probably where we're going. If we can't work something out here, we're going to offer sheet the player, and we think he's going to sign it. Ultimately, he did put Montreal in a tough position. They've moved on. Christian Dvorak's there now. But I do think his point is a really good one. It's this confluence of events that has to occur. It's not just, hey, there's a good yeah. player, and there's a team that might be a little bit financially strapped right now. Let's go get Well, you also got to get the player to sign, and you also have to really bet on what happens if you get the player as well. It's not just one of these, like an auction, Jamie, where you go, I don't really want this, but I'm going to bid it up so that other people have to spend their money on it. Like, that can be part of your strategy, but you better damn well be prepared for the player saying yes and ultimately getting the player. Yeah, you better be prepared to actually pay the auctioneer, right, at the end of the day when you win. And obviously they are. You you heard how kind of passionately he spoke about Kakanyemi's upside. And, you know, he admitted, yeah, we're making a bet here. We're making a bet on his long-term development. It's obviously a bet they feel good at, good about at the price they had to pay. But you're right. It really does. To me, it's kind of the exception that proves the rule with offer sheets where you look at all of the things that had to line up and the fact that, you know, the two franchises had to have a pretty different opinion of the player in, in question, which I think is a big part of the story. So many things had to line up for this to happen. It shows you why it doesn't happen very often because it's just it's rare that these circumstances align. Not rare that we turn things over to local programming in Calgary at this time. We will do it again today. Charitable endeavor going on. The boys are on location, so you're going to hear that on Sportsnet 960. We'll roll on here on Sportsnet 650. Obviously, some news pertaining to a former Canuck today and questions about offer sheets regarding Vancouver that continue to come in to 650-650. You can hit us up there. We'll touch those next. And we got a lot to do here in this final hour of the program. Don't go anywhere. It's Rent to Own Sermon with Jamie Dodd. That's some of the news that has come out this morning. Jake Vertanen off to Russia. That had been rumored last week. He signs a one-year deal with Spartak Moscow. Obviously has some off-ice issues that need to be dealt with. I'm not sure what stage the investigation is at and where we're going from here. We will let the legal process play out. But as far as the professional side of things in his career, Jake Vertanen has signed on in the KHL. We can get into that this hour should you choose? Dunbar Lumber text message inbox is 650-650. It's Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd, who's in all week for Karen Sermon. But there's some, what I would call disappointing, but should not be debilitating news. Hopefully not on a personal front, but I mean for our men's national side coming out just now here. Jamie Alfonso Davies, who got a bit of a knock in that match against the U.S. after setting up the game-tying goal. He left the match. He went, okay, looks okay on the bench. Was this fatigue? How bad is it? Well, Alfonso Davies would not appear to be an option for tomorrow in Toronto. Yeah, the reporting we're seeing, and I don't believe this has been confirmed by Soccer Canada yet or, or, or Bayern Munich for that matter, but the reporting we're seeing coming from Germany is that Alfonso Davies is headed back to Munich and he's going to have an MRI on his knee. When you have one of the best fullbacks in the world, you are going to have a say in matters like this. And with where Canada is at in the qualification process and with how much money Bayern Munich pays Alfonso Davies with one of the most prestigious clubs in the world, 
this is logical. Is it disappointing? Absolutely, it's disappointing. If you're a Canadian soccer fan, as I think probably the bulk of our listeners are, and, and you got a little hyped up after seeing that draw with the U.S. on the weekend and how good Davies was for a second consecutive match. Yeah, it's disappointing. But I will equate this, and first and foremost, let's just hope he's not hurt badly. Okay? Right. Let's just hope he's not hurt badly. But tomorrow night is one of 14. And tomorrow night, Canada is at home, and this loss, despite it being the best player on the park tomorrow, this should not be debilitating for Canada. I will equate it to what I said about Jamal Murray. When Jamal Murray went down, that was a big blow for our Canadian men's Olympic team and the, and the possibility of qualifying for Tokyo. But that alone should not derail it. Like, we are at a place with basketball. Unfortunately, we're not as far along as we should be. But we're at a place with basketball where the depth of the roster, and we're at a place with our national men's soccer team where the depth of the roster should still be good enough to get the job done tomorrow, Jamie. It should. And that's what Terry Dunfield said when we had him on the show earlier. And you just look at the attacking talent that John Herdman still has to choose from at his disposal, right? Even without Alfonso Davies. And as Terry Dunfield said, you know, they didn't have Alfonso Davies at the Gold Cup. And they made a really impressive run at that tournament. So they can still function without him. It's a major blow. But in the match tomorrow against that opponent, and I don't want to take anything away from El Salvador, but they are one of the weaker sides in the qualification process. It's not an excuse. You still have to get three points from that match, even without Alfonso Davies, despite how good he's been, despite the fact that he has been, you know, really looking like the best player in CONCACAF so far. You have enough depth behind him that three points is still the expectation. Yeah, especially when you consider the opposition here. If we're talking about playing Mexico, Jamie, now maybe we're having a little bit of a different conversation. Now it's, okay, better change the tactics here. I'm not sure how much attacking we're going to be able to do. We're talking against, obviously, the top side talent-wise in CONCACAF in Mexico. That's not what El Salvador is. It's not. And Canada should have enough. So I'm not going to say, well, it's okay. Go get, no. Go get three points tomorrow. That's where we should be at with our expectation with this team. Yes, it absolutely. It doesn't change the expectation at all. Now, the bigger question is, okay, well, what does this mean for his availability for future games? Because they are going to need Alfonso Davies, I think, to qualify. It, maybe not. They don't need him for tomorrow's match against El Salvador, but through the entire 14-game process, I think they need Alfonso Davies to get that third spot or one of the top three spots to qualify. So the question of, okay, is this – just an MRI for precautionary reasons? Are they worried there could be a long-term thing there? That's a bigger concern. But tomorrow, it shouldn't derail plans for that game against El Salvador. Yeah, and that's why I'll go back to the parallel with Jamal Murray. There still should have been enough on that Canadian roster. There still was enough on that Canadian roster that it should have been able to get to the Olympics. And that, to me, is why it was somewhat of a failure in Victoria. Not that they didn't play hard, but they didn't get the results they needed. And when I looked at Jamal Murray's absence, I went, okay, that's the difference between possibly contending for a medal, losing guys like that, and and being able to compete once you get to the biggest stage. And that's where I yeah. would put this as well. Okay, Deeper into this qualifying, we get down to where we're doing the math. Okay, here's what Canada needs if it's going to get in. Here's how up against it they are. Here's where they better hold serve. Okay, well, we're having that conversation a little further down the road. You're damn right they're going to need Alfonso Davies, and they're going to need a number of other their talented players as well. Tomorrow against El Salvador, I'm not trying to disrespect that side whatsoever, but you're on your home soil. You haven't had to travel outside of the two countries in which the yep. bulkier players generally perform. Go make it happen tomorrow. 
Yeah, go make it happen. Go dominate play. You know, El Salvador hasn't scored a goal yet. They haven't conceded either, but they haven't scored a goal yet in their first two matches. You know they are going to be very, very much on the back foot coming north to play Canada. You have to take the game to them, and you need other players to step up and provide those special moments in the final third, right, to provide the final product in a way that Alfonso Davies has been doing for them so far. They should have the talent to be able to do that. They're going to have a ton of the ball. They're going to have their opportunities. It's just a question of the attackers stepping up and making it count. Scott Rental, Jamie Dodd, just getting you up to speed on the news and a report out there that Alfonso Davies is headed back to Germany to have his knee looked at, make sure that he's going to be okay moving forward. Had somebody talking about in the inbox, 650-650, if you want in this conversation about Bianca last night. We'll get to that this hour as well. We will talk about Canadian tennis. If you didn't join the show earlier, Carolyn Cameron, we had an in-depth interview about her with where we're at, about the Bianca match last night. I certainly stayed up and watched. I know you did as well. Leilani Fernandez won one. They are on serve in the first set right now. First of two Canadians trying to play their way into semifinals. One on the women's side. Felix Oje Aliassim will try to do so a little later on on the men's side. We mentioned the Jake Vertanen news. A lot of people saying move on. Yep, we're happy to do that. That isn't going to be the focus of the show today. There are questions still coming in about the offer sheet. Good interview, I thought, with Eric Tulski as well. I thought he had a lot to say, and we can get to some of the, the things that stood out to us in a second. But, hey, what about... A Pedersen offer sheet. The threat's still out there. Shane said he's a franchise center. They don't come along very often, especially centers in a 995 offer sheet. It's a steal. That's only three first rounders, not the four that you go to if you go over the threshold once you get a little bit over $10 million. It's a fair point, Shane. But one of the things that Jamie and I talked about earlier on the program, they not only do you have to get Pedersen to sign it, you also have to look a little beyond that. Who's representing Pedersen? Who's representing Hughes? Which team employs them both right now? If you get Pedersen to sign an offer sheet, if he actually doesn't want to leave, well, now you're kind of hurting your teammate when it comes to his contract that he's going to be able to sign as well. Yeah, and, you know, to Shane's point, yes, okay, if you get the compensation down to three first-round picks instead of four, sure, it makes it more enticing for a team to try that. But, yeah, Pedersen has to sign it. And if you get it down to 9.95, the Canucks are matching. Right? The Canucks are going to match that. Now, it makes the situation with Quinn Hughes more difficult, but they are going to match that if it's 9.95. That's just not uncomfortable enough for the Canucks to consider not matching it. And Jim Benning, you know, and part of this is posturing, but he's said many times, look, go nuts, offer sheet Elias Pettersson, we are going to match it. And again, if maybe if they still had different agents, okay, maybe... Elias Pettersson's representation doesn't care about that, and they look and say, okay, whatever. Hey, we'll just go get the most money we can, and if it's via an offer sheet, we'll do that. But you're right. I mean, that money is almost directly coming out of Quinn Hughes' pocket, right? If he goes and signs that kind of offer sheet, at the very least, it makes it very, very complicated for the Canucks to sign Quinn Hughes. They, they wouldn't be able to do the, you know, just north of $8 million AAV that Patrick Johnston was reporting earlier today. So it would make things very complicated in a way that wouldn't necessarily serve Quinn Hughes. And just to be clear about what Patrick reported or didn't, he said, look, don't be surprised if Quinn Hughes' contract comes in just over $8 million bucks. He said the comp is obvious. You and I talked about this early in the program. Miro Haskinen's the comp. 
by 8.45 in Dallas. Maybe it's a little south of there. I don't know if the term's exactly the same, but it's going to be a longer-term deal if, in fact, there's an 8 in front of it. We all know that. And just to clear up any confusion that might be out there, we've had people say, well, the Canucks only have $10 million in cap space. And others say they've only got $13 million in cap space. I don't want to go through all of the math involved, but I've read enough articles, and I can I can say this with conviction, Jamie. The Canucks have 15 point whatever million dollars left. Yep. Okay, they've got between 15 and 16 million dollars left. Once Michael Furland's contract goes on LTIR, and once they can do some cap manipulation, if you want to call it that, with the way you can assign contracts, immediately call them up, guys that'll be buried in the minors. Two guys, somewhere between fifteen and sixteen million dollars. That's where this meets out. Let's say Quinn Hughes comes in just over eight million. Let's say that number ends up being accurate. Well, you got seven and change, whatever that change happens to be, to get Elias Pettersson under contract, which has always been the most I, I suppose obvious place to land on a bridge deal. There's been very little, if any, talk about Elias Pettersson signing long term. And you just look, you know, we're talking about the comps for Quinn Hughes. I think a lot of people have identified Matt Barzell as maybe the clearest comp for Elias Pettersson, right? And what did he sign? I believe it was three years, $7 million coming off his ELC, right? So Elias Pettersson probably gets a little bit more than that. But you're right. If Elias, if Quinn Hughes takes up, you know, roughly $8 million, a little bit more than $8 million of that chunk of change they have left, okay, then you're looking at Elias Pettersson on that kind of 3 by 7 bridge deal, which is, again, something that has been rumored for a long time or something at least that has been speculated about for a long time. And I mean, overall, I think we've kind of had the sense that that between 15 and 16 million, that's what the Canucks have had budgeted for these two players for quite some time. And that certainly looks like how it's going to play out here in the final weeks before training camp. The estimates sound pretty reasonable to me. If Hughes is going to get term what Patrick Johnson laid out there for an estimate makes a whole lot of sense to me. What you just said about Matt Barzell being a comp, Braden Point's another comp that would be thrown in there. He signed a three-year bridge deal at six seven five. Well, there's inflation, and you're going to have a lot of agents tell you this as well, Jamie. Yeah, but because of tax situations and organizational depth, that six seven five in Tampa, that's probably eight million dollars somewhere else. Like that's the way the agent's going to negotiate, right? Sure, and that might have more persuasion for a UFA, but I think the team's response is probably, okay, well, like if, if that someone else is willing to sign you to an offer sheet like that, go nuts. Go try to get it, right? And that, that that's where RFAs just lack that leverage. You know, the agent can make that argument to their blue in the face, and they probably – he will get more than Braden Point got on that deal because of inflation and maybe because of taxes, but you're not going to convince – the team when when they're dealing with an RFA to, oh, well, you're right, of course. Of course we have to make you whole because of our tax situation here. Minor Matt in Abbotsford says, personally, I think the Canes trying to acquire Kakanyemi via trade was a farce. What better way to make sure your offer sheet goes through than to poke and prod the Habs in terms of what kind of money they could afford to take back in a Kakanyemi trade? I don't think it would have only been ELC players headed to the Habs. Once the Canes knew what the Habs could legally afford to take back against the cap, all they had to do was offer Sheet Cook and Yemi a wee bit more than what the Habs could afford. Well, I understand the theory there, but everything that I've heard Elliot Friedman report 
leads me to believe the compensation that would have been going back to Montreal was pretty similar to what they got, that it was draft pick compensation as opposed to player compensation along the way. That's what Friedman said in his latest podcast, that it was a a similar type package. I don't know if we're quibbling about a third rounder and a fourth rounder or what have you, but it sounds like that was the speculative deal that was in place no matter what. And, and maybe Montreal, Jamie, was trying to call the bluff here as well. You guys actually won't go through with an offer right. sheet. Like, you guys aren't going to pay him $6.1 million for a year. We know that. You can say, or maybe that's so far beyond what Montreal, okay, maybe they offer sheet him at, at four and a half or, right. or $5 million bucks, but they're not going to offer sheet him at six one. Well, and to Minor Matt's point, you know, I mean, I'm sure they did use the opportunity of those trade negotiations to gather more information, right? Of course they did. Every team does that when they're talking to any other organization about a player. It's always a chance to learn a little bit more about what that team thinks, about how they view players, about how they might view players on your roster. It's always a chance to gather more information. But, you know, I look at it from Montreal's perspective. If they loved Kakanyemi, if they were as high on Kakanyemi as we heard that Eric Tulski is when we talked to him, you know, half an hour ago, or go, Scotty, then Montreal would have matched this and found a way to make the salary work for this year, right? If they loved Kakanyemi that much, yeah, it would have been uncomfortable. They would have had to make some really difficult decisions, probably give up some assets to move money around, but they would have made it, made it work. So the salary and what it means for just beyond this year, that certainly played a part in it. But I also just think it comes down to, the Carolina Hurricanes value the player more than Montreal did, and they just looked at it at this price. It's not worth everything we'd have to do to keep them around. That's part of it, Jamie. I think part of it has to do with where they are in their competitive window as well. We've talked about the age of Montreal's roster and where they got to last year. And while you maybe not be able to expect a Stanley Cup run, like Carey Price isn't getting any younger here. We saw what happened with Shea Weber. You start to look at the likes of Brendan Gallagher, as effective as he is and as much as we love him. They're getting more tread on the tires here. Montreal wasn't going to be able to go. Okay, well we can we can sit back and we've got we're, we're just a younger team. Yeah, they've got Suzuki and Hadcock and Yemi up until this point, and they've got other young young players like Cole Caulfield in the organization. But when you look at the roster stratification and everything they've done leading up to this. They have to try to put themselves in as, as good a position to be competitive in the next couple of years as they possibly can. I think your point about which team valued the player more is well made. I also think part of it has to do with your team dynamic and worrying about future costs. And there had obviously been some sort of bridge between these two sides where things had gotten contentious, and that's not a, yeah. easy to recover from as well. And, and maybe part of Montreal's thinking is, Look, if we give in here, what message does that send for our future negotiation? If we give him 6.1, what do we have to pay Suzuki? Yeah. And you heard Mark Bergevin reference that, right? We played his comments earlier in the show about, hey, we have kind of an internal. It's not just about the salary cap, right? We have a kind of internal salary structure that we're trying to follow to get the most out of our team. And you're right. They're going to have some some big dollar, high profile negotiations coming up with really talented young players. And again, I, I think it was less about the salary cap machinations for this year and more about going forward, right? Because once you sign Kakinyemi to that one year 6.1 deal, you're really betting on locking him up long term. And if Montreal didn't have the appetite to do that, it didn't make sense for them to match. A couple of texts coming in while we're having this contractual conversation. Scott Rental, Jamie Dodd, you can get into 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. This from Brad in Calgary. The league needs to level the field on taxes. It's insane that a player can walk away with the same money signing for almost $2 million less. Thought the cap was to square up the field. 
No, the league doesn't need to do that, in my opinion, Brad. I understand why Canadian fans in particular get disgruntled with that, but you can't level the playing field between cities. So how are you going to level it between taxes? Every single place in the National Hockey League has pros and cons. In some places, the pros happen to be taxes, but you might never get the type of environment that you're going to find in another place. And we've made the comparison before. It doesn't feel as apt right now because the Panthers are on their way up, Jamie, but the Panthers have had the exact same tax advantage that the Tampa Bay Lightning have had for a number of years, and yet you've had markedly different results, and you've had markedly different players willing to sign for for certain contracts in different places. If you're going to go to Florida, well, no, man, you better max me out. Tampa Bay, actually, we've created a culture of winning here, and, and it's a little bit different, so I'll sign for a little bit less. That's just part of the deal. Vancouver compares differently to Winnipeg on a geographical sense. We all know that. That's an advantage for a lot of people in Vancouver. Winnipeg doesn't have that same advantage. You can't level it as far as taxes go. No, it's like saying you have to, you know, level the lifestyle playing field between New York and Columbus, right? And you just, you can't do that. And as it turns out, you know, some people like, some players are going to be more attracted to the New York lifestyle. Some players are going to be more attracted to the Columbus lifestyle, right? And for some players, it will be all about the tax considerations and I don't want to pay any tax. And that means I'm going to Tampa or I'm going to Florida or I'm going to Dallas. But other players will say, you know what? I actually like living in City X and I'm willing to you know, pay a little bit extra on my taxes for that. So I don't think, you know, it's so easy for fans in Canada to point the finger at that issue and say, oh, that's why Tampa's able to get all these guys under contract. It's much more complicated than that. The Florida example is a really good one. I mean, it's not as ta- Tampa's on a really nice long run of success here, but it's not as if they've been a powerhouse for their entire existence, right? Like a lot else has to go right. You have to make a lot of other really good decisions, you know, for that kind of advantage to really come into play. Dallas is another good example. I know they made the Stanley Cup final a couple years ago, but they're not a traditional powerhouse and they play in a very tax-friendly environment. I get why people bring it up, but I think it's just so much less of an issue than a lot of people think. Next text I want to touch on here comes from an unsigned text. Or sign your text. We want to give you credit when we get this stuff on the air. Too bad they have to be so greedy and hold out for every last dollar. That's in reference to Pedersen and Hughes. First of all, that's very presumptive. That's very presumptive. If it was just about being greedy and getting every last dollar, maybe Elias Pedersen is signing an offer sheet, Jamie. We can't assume what we know is going on in his mind or where the negotiation is at right now. And there is a big difference between every last dollar and what you consider fair. And every time you come to a negotiation, the Canucks or any other team in the National Hockey League, they're going to try to get the best deal possible for them. And the agent's job is to try to do that within reason for his player as well. It's not Elias Pedersen's obligation to give a hometown. I'm going to going to sign the Nathan McKinnon contract here because he's a more accomplished player, so I'll sign for 6.3. No, there's a fair place to meet in the middle here. Of course there is. This is still at root a negotiation between, you know, an employer and an employee, right? And I understand in the salary cap situation, you know, fans view it as, oh, he's hurting the team by demanding more. But this is a negotiation like any other, right? And as you said, we have no idea what Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes' demands are, right? We just have absolutely no idea. So it's not fair to say, oh, they're holding out for every last dollar. They're trying to get something that they feel good about. And the Canucks have an obligation to, you know, negotiate with them in good faith and try to find something that works for both sides. And also, I will point out, you know, they're not exactly holding out right now, right? It's not as if they're the only RFAs. 
that are left without a deal and everyone else was signed months ago. This is this is how the RFA process works in the NHL. It drags on into September. This is very, very normal. We can't really read anything into how Pedersen and Hughes are negotiating based on the timeline here. We have a contract extension to announce here, Jamie. And it comes to us from the nation's capital. It is not, however, Brady Kachuk. Brady Kachuk, to the best of my knowledge, has not yet been extended. That's the one Senators fans were waiting on. It's the general manager. Pierre Dorian has been extended through the 24-25 season. Senators fans were pleasantly surprised with the competitive nature of their team last year. They saw some young players take steps. Obviously, there's a step that they hope is going to happen this coming season, now getting competitive for a playoff spot, and we, we saw that evolution in Vancouver. Okay, you're better than we thought you were going to be, but now you got to compete for a playoff spot, and I imagine that's what they're expecting in Ottawa this year, whether they absolutely get in or not. Dorian's got himself another few years on the contract. Yeah, he's got some some job security while he, you know, manages up towards Eugene Melnick, which is, you know, always what it comes down to in Ottawa. I find Pierre Dorian fascinating because if you're trying to kind of rank or evaluate general managers around the league, to me, he might be one of the most difficult to truly evaluate because the ownership situation looms so large in Ottawa and you never know okay, what, what kind of direction is he being is he getting from Melnick? How much freedom does he have to really work and tinker with the roster? You know, I know a lot of Senators fans, when he was kind of in the process of tearing down that team that went to the Eastern Conference Finals a few years ago, there was a lot of frustration. You know, you look back at it now, okay, a lot of those deals actually turned out all right for Ottawa. He's made some good draft picks. You know, certainly they're crazy about Brady Kachuk there. Tim Stutzla they're really excited about. They have some other young talent on the team it's just always the question is whether it's Pierre Dorian or anyone else is Eugene Malnick going to allow them to take the next step as a franchise financially I'm not surprised by this when you see the way things have gone in the last couple of years and you just alluded to a bunch of it hey they trade Eric Carl. Ah, they got fleeced on Carlson they got yeah. fleeced on Hoffman all of a sudden those deals they don't look so bad anymore the one that they did with Vegas and sending Mark Stone there. Well, Brandstrom hasn't turned out yet, but he's still a young defenseman, and we'll see where his his career goes. He's only 22 years old right now. But the draft pick, you're absolutely right about that. Likely, if you're a Senators fan, the one that you're not thrilled about right now is Matt Murray. Like, that's the one that you go, "Mm, we gave up too much in that trade, and then we paid this guy, and we didn't really need to do that. I'm not sold on that. So that might be the one sticking point. But as far as what the youth movement looks like, and this is assuming he gets Brady Kachuk under a reasonable contract and it's something that has term attached to it, I can understand why this would feel like the right time to give him the the extension. Whether you're a big fan of Dorian or not, his Q rating in, in Ottawa is probably a lot higher than it was a couple of years ago. It, it absolutely is. And I, you know, as I kind of alluded to, the whole idea of managing up, it hasn't been perfect in Ottawa the last couple of years, but they have stayed out of the headlines for the wrong reason a lot more than we're used to seeing, right? It's been kind of a, a quiet, uneventful couple of years in Ottawa for the most part. There's been hiccups here and there with that, certainly. And again, I do wonder, I mean, is that one of Pierre Dorian's greatest strengths, right? That he is able to do that managing up with Eugene Malnick and kind of, okay, keep things just on the tracks there in Ottawa, more or less. Well, here's the thing. When you make mistakes and you keep your job, you have to prove to those who employ you and and those you serve, and in this case, this is Senators fans, as much as it's Eugene Malnick, that you learn from your mistakes. All right, maybe I messed up on the Matt Duchesne trade. 
pretty clear we didn't come out on top on that one. That, that yep. didn't that didn't go particularly well for us. But some of my subsequent trades, let's let's just hope there's more of them in the win category than there are in the loss category because every single general we can talk about the best ones in the game. They've lost some trades along the way, Jamie. Oh, every general manager has hits and misses. That's that's just how it goes. If you serve long enough as a general manager, yeah, you're going to have some ugly marks on your resume. That's in, unavoidable in the NHL. Keep those texts coming in. There's lots rolling in now. We'll tell you what's happening on the court as well. Leilani Fernandez in action at the U.S. Open, and there's still more from this jam-packed weekend to get in before the end of the program today. Dunbar Lumber text line 650-650. It's Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd filling in for Karen Sermon. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. I got to work out my communication. I got to work out my communication here, Jamie. I thought we were coming back. I thought we were coming back with Layla by Eric Clapton, but I'm mistaken. <laughs> I'm mistaken on that front. I have a good excuse, Scott. I can tell you up there. Oh. No, okay. tell us Tell us now. I want yeah, accountability sure. now, Balak. Uh, that Bick Nazar Sportsnet Today ad you just heard, I put that together about 45 seconds ago. Blame in the Bick. There you go. Blame in the Bick. <laughs> the guy fired his last co-host. You better watch out, Bell. I was going to say, the, bo- <laughs> the boss is gone day one, and things are falling apart around well, here. I, I shouldn't throw him under the bus, but he sent me his voice for that about, about a minute and a half ago. So nah, I'm going to I'm, I'm put this one on Bick. <laughs> I'm, I'm comfortable doing that. Sportsnet 650 tyrant Bick Nazar, as he will <laughs> be known from this point forward. Well, there was a reason we were going to play Layla by Eric Clapton coming back. It's because Layla Annie Fernandez is up, and she's up large in the first set against the five seed at the U.S. Open, Jamie. Yeah, serving for the set as we speak, leading five to three in set one. Again, against the fifth seed, what a massive beginning to the match that would be for the young. A little revenge, I would say. A little revenge in this tournament. Yes, she's very... Fidelina is regarded right now in the world much higher than Layla Annie Fernandez. But do you remember who Svetolino took out in the first round of this tournament? Rebecca Marino. So there you go. For, for her country countrywoman, Layla yeah, Annie Fernandez, it. she's a, it's revenge. This is it's not revenge like the Carolina Hurricanes, Montreal Canadiens, Jamie. This is <laughs> this is personal this time in the last couple of weeks. Patriotic revenge. I love it. I love to see it. As I said to you before, like this sports week sets up so well, and you've got a couple of tennis matches you have to watch. Baseball, if you're into the race, and even if you're not, like this is the time of year that casual sports fans get interested in baseball. We're not quite there yet for the tier of sports fan my wife is at, and she likes sports, but she's not a big baseball fan. Come October, she's into it. She can watch playoff baseball. I'm not sure she's into the, the race right now, but a lot of people are. Man, it was fun to watch this weekend. NFL's coming around in two days. That's pretty decent to watch. And I wanted to get this story in before the end of the hour because we teased it a couple of times. We've got Tampa Bay. We've got Dallas. Dallas without one of their starting guards, by the way. COVID already mm-hmm. impacting this season. Zach Martin is out. He is on the COVID list as he tested positive on Sunday. And that's a big blow for Dallas. We know how important their offensive line is. You know, everyone's expecting, hoping that with Dak back and if he's able to get back to where he was before the injury, they'll have a, you know, high-octane, really powerful offense there. But that offensive line is huge for them, and he's a big part of it. He is. And so that's the first game of the season, and there's a an impact. We'll see how large that looms for the Dallas Cowboys, who are already up against it, going against the defending champs, who return all 22 starters on Thursday night, led by Tom Brady, of course. 
It was not a starting quarterback that we saw last year when the Denver Broncos took on the New Orleans Saints. This is how I'm relating this back, Jamie. I teased this story. You remember the story last year. And for those oh, who yeah. I need to jog your memory, Denver had a game at home against New Orleans and found out late in the week, sorry, we are ruling all your quarterbacks out. They are done. They're not playing this week. We've had positive COVID tests, and all of them, because they're in the quarterback room together, they are out, and we're not postponing the game. You're going to have yeah. to play. You figure it out. Well, there's more information that has come out and why the NFL had even more of a leg to stand on it when it made that ruling, unless you're a Broncos fan, Jamie. Yeah, and the specifics of it are that, okay, if, as if you remember, it was the issue was that the quarterbacks were all close contacts with yes. each other, right? Because they're sharing a room, they're doing film study together, and that I believe it was the issue was that they, they weren't wearing their masks, right? So it was, okay, well, you're all close contacts, you're not wearing masks, like the rules say that you all have to be out, but it wasn't just a matter of not following the protocols, right? Like they got caught. And they tried to lie to the NFL about it as well. Yes, they did. They took their monitors and they put them in four corners of the room and then just did what they felt like doing. And surveillance <laughs> video caught them. Like it was, it was, I, whatever show you want. I don't know. I don't know. You've seen this before where the guy who's got the ankle bracelet, the, yeah. the, the home monitoring system, he tries to take it off and, and put it on an animal. Ah, then they'll think yeah, I'm at home yeah. and I can go out. Nobody will catch me. Like, they tried to do a version of that, but they got duped by the video. Oh, it's so good. They I, Like, they had to know that there was surveillance footage, right? I mean, you would think so, at least. That, okay, hey, yeah, actually, it's not just the monitors. It's There's cameras watching us, too, guys, that are going to pick this up. This, this foolproof plan is not actually going to work because of the cameras. You would think... That would enter into it. Yeah, I'm not surprised by the NFL doing it at all when you find no. out more about the story. It's, it felt pretty punitive at the time. I'll be honest. It felt pretty punitive. Man, they're going to they're gonna put this team in that situation, not just from a competitive disadvantage, but I felt bad for the kid. I can't remember his oh, name yeah. right now. I don't know if you have the recall off the top of your head to remember his name, but he played quarterback in college. He was on the practice roster as a receiver, and they went, okay, so here's the ruling. Who's next man up? You are. And you're going to come, yeah. and you're going to start at quarterback, and you got a couple of days to get ready for this National Football League game. Kendall Hinton was the guy's name, who was a, a wide receiver, I believe from the practice squad, wide yep. receiver, who, who had to turn up and play quarterback in a National Football League game. You're right. At the time, it did feel pretty punitive. I kind of interpreted it as the NFL just showing what lengths it would go it would go to to keep everything on track with its season right and to avoid postponing games if at all possible certainly to avoid ever canceling a game right I know they did have to postpone some games throughout the course of the season but that was how I read it at the time was they just couldn't putting their foot down and saying look we're going to steamroll through this basically no matter what happens but it does make a lot more sense when you understand the kind of machinations behind the scene that Denver was trying to pull off or that the quarterbacks were trying to pull off specifically. It reminds me a little bit of the situation in the CFL, right? With the Edmonton Elks player, Jacob Ruby, who was dismissed from the team and banned from the league for the year. No other team can sign him. And it wasn't just that he broke protocol, right? It wasn't that he went, you know, went to a restaurant when he wasn't supposed to. It was the dishonesty behind it. It was the trying to fool the team into thinking one way when it was actually the other. What do you always tell your kids, Jamie? I mean, I don't know what you tell Nora, but I'll tell you what I tell my daughters. Yeah. Look, we're all going to make mistakes, 
but don't lie about them. We need to be yep. honest here. If you're not honest, that's when things get worse. So just fess up to what happened, and we'll deal with it, and we'll move on. And I think the parallel you draw, while they're a little bit different, I agree that there is that synergy between what happened with Jake Rude. Hey, we've seen in the NBA, the NFL, Major League, we've seen people decide, ah, no one's going to catch me. I'm not wearing a mask. Or I know I'm not supposed to go into a restaurant on this road trip, but I'm going anyway, and, and nobody yeah. will find out. And you get caught, and there's a certain punishment for that. But when you try to go out of your way to to dupe everybody and say, oh, no, 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 I misrepresented myself completely, that's where you really get in trouble. And Jacob Ruby's paying the price with this year of his career. Yeah, and the Denver Broncos had to pay the price in that game, right, by starting a wide receiver. I want to get back to tennis here for a second. Just a few minutes left in this show. Man, was I enthralled watching that tennis match, and I was gutted watching that tennis match last night when Bianca left in the third set, and she comes back with the wrap on her leg, and you went, okay, they gave her treatment. She's going to be able to get through this. And the, the couple of times where you saw her leg buckle because she just yeah. didn't have enough strength or it was the hamstring cramping up, if that's what it ended up being, we didn't get specific details after the match. Man, that was tough to watch last night. And at the same time, you were pretty proud of her for trying to get through that. It was tough, but it was great drama. Like, it was exceptional theater. It was extremely compelling, the human side of it. You know, the roller coaster, the match had been even up to that point, right, was incredible. And then to have that kind of at the very end. And, you know, we talked about it a lot with Carolyn Cameron earlier in the show, just that incredible fight she has and that will to never give up. You still kind of thought, like, okay, is there any way maybe – Maybe she could pull this out before it just became obvious her body, you know, wasn't up to it. It was tough, but it was very, very entertaining at the same time. Yeah, it was. And her opponent, Maria Sakari, was excellent last night. Nothing should be taken away from her and the way she battled. She was down a set. She saw Bianca fight back in that second set tiebreaker to level things at six when she had three set points there and it looked like maybe Bianca's going to overtake her and who knows? Who knows where the injury status is at? Boy, boy, did she seem to slip last night. I'm not going to disparage her equipment provider, but maybe there, maybe there's a conversation with Nike after that. Didn't it seem like she was falling a lot and yep. sliding a lot last night? Yes, absolutely. That's interesting. That's a good point. I like that. Get Nike on the phone. Hey, guys, uh, maybe let's try to avoid this going forward. huh? Well, do you remember the hubbub about Zion and his shoe blowing out at Duke? Yep. I sure do. I what's, sure do. What's this guy doing? He should never play another game. He's good. He should sh sue the shoe company right now. <laughs> it, it wasn't quite that way with Bianca last night, but the thought crossed my mind. She kept looking at her shoes after a couple, and she was readjusting her socks, and then she just didn't seem comfortable out there in the second set of that match. Yeah, you're right. That's a great way to put it. Just didn't seem comfortable for whatever was working for her, and you know whatever was going right early in that match. Just kind of, kind of lost it a little bit in that second set. Man, I just hope she's not hurt badly long term. That yep. was my one. That was my one concern as that match went on, and it it was becoming perfectly clear that she wasn't going to be able to win. Like. Sakari started to move around the court, and she just couldn't get there on some of the shots that you'd seen her get to earlier in the game. And Sakari, well, yeah, I'm sorry, but this is what I got to do. Like, we're at the U.S. Open. That's where the ball is going, and, and you live with it. And then she'd force Deuce, or she'd rally back. I think she was down love 30 in that final service game where Sakari was trying to break for the match, and she fought back to 30-30, and then she fought the Deuce. And I went, I don't know how much longer I want you out there because I don't want this injury to get worse. Well, and the health is always top of mind in the conversation with Bianca Andreescu right now, which is unfortunate because she's so talented and she's so fun to watch. And, you know, I've said this at a few different times this summer as we've been 
watching Bianca, Bianca and Drescu, like I just want her to have a long enough healthy stretch where not that it goes away because health is always a concern for top level athletes, but that at least it's not something we feel compelled to talk about every time she's in a tournament, right? Because right now, every high profile tournament she's in, that's what we're going to ask about. We're going to think about, okay, can she stay healthy? Can she get through this at, you know, top physical condition without suffering a setback like we saw last night? I just want it to be, okay, whatever the time frame is, you know, however many tournaments or months she has to stay healthy for to get it out of the conversation. I just want to see her, I want it to be us to be able to talk about all the good things with her, right? Rather than con- being constantly worried about her physical condition. And part of what helps her here is that there's another young Canadian playing today. And yep. she just won the first set, by the way. She won it 6-3. So they're moving to the second set. Leilani Fernandez is one set away from going to the U.S. Open semifinal. On the women's side, Felix Jose, uh, OJ Aliasim is going to play tonight. And it's not that we discount Bianca or hope less for Bianca, but it, it makes it easier to turn your attention when there's this wave of young talent coming on both the men's and women's side. Chapo goes, oh, that was disappointing because he had looked so good up to that point in the tournament. Oh, yeah, but Felix is still playing, and he might get himself into the semi. It's pretty incredible, right, that we're talking about two Canadians with a chance to go to the semifinals, one on either side of the bracket, the men's and the women's side, and, you know, neither of them are Bianca Andreescu or Denis Shapovalov, right? There's these other guys, other players, who are really, really good and just as competitive as those two, it's incredible. Just go back, you know, three years, right? And I know Shapo would burst on the scene, and there was people who were really locked on the into the game who were telling us, okay, wait until you see Bianca, wait until you see what Felix can do. But, you know, go back three years and just imagine that we could have this many Canadians turning in really, really strong performances at a Grand Slam event. It, it wouldn't feel real, but here it is. We're seeing it that... You know, even when Bianca Andreescu goes out, there's other Canadians we can pin our hopes in. It's incredible. Yeah, we just went through a stretch where it was, okay, Milos is really good. Like, Milos yep. is top five in the world. Unfortunately, he's not top four or top three because of those three yep. other guys that happen to exist. But as soon as he's done, well, maybe Daniel Nestor will be doing something in doubles or maybe Pospisil will be doing something in doubles. But that was a fleeting hope that you had, and it's just so much different now. Speaking of hope, how much was your hope restored in the last five days with the Toronto Blue Jays? Oh, it's been massive. It really, really has been massive. That sweep against Oakland, honestly, with the way, and I know they won two out of three against Baltimore, but just dropping that one game, it's like, okay, well, now you really have to go out and sweep the Oakland A's. They did that. More important than just the results, though, has been the fact that their bats are alive again. All of a sudden, they're hitting the cover off the ball again. Vladdy has come alive. Lourdes Gurriel has gotten really hot. All of a sudden, Teoscar's bat has come back. So the fact that not just that they're winning games, but they're back to looking like their old selves at the plate. And, you know, Robbie Ray has still been fantastic. You know, Hinjin Ryu had a really good outing yesterday. So... All of a sudden, okay, the bullpen's always going to be an issue. But with the bats hitting like this and the starting pitching performing like it is, yeah, this team can stay hot. It, they're still in tough against the Yankees for the final three games of this series, but they have the elements there to continue this hot streak. Look, it's it's tough sledding still with the hole they dug themselves in in August, but you're right. You can at least allow yourself to get excited now, again, if you're a Jays fan. Yeah, they're going to see Garrett Cole tonight. That's no easy task, and it's in the Bronx. And after this series, you mentioned there's three more against the Yanks. It's on to Baltimore, and the pressure will be on to win all of those games. We saw how disappointing it felt just dropping one of those three against the Orioles last week. You know we've been looking at the Yankees for the most part and saying, oof, 
man, are the Yankees on a tear. They won 13 straight, and they got seven games left against them. How's that? Four of them are in New York. How's that going to go? You look at Tampa Bay. It's outrageous. You look at Tampa Bay and how good they are and how much fun it was watching them come back yesterday. That's now 43 times this season that Tampa Bay has come back to win again. I I really think, I know there's been a lot said about them and a lot written about them, but I still kind of think the Tampa Bay Rays are one of the underrated stories in sports, right? You know, we had Eric Tulski on earlier in the show, and there's kind of that underdog mentality or underdog aura that exists in Carolina, right? They're not a big market team. They're, you know, they're not one of the traditional powerhouses in the NHL, but they've been able to have success. But, you know, as Tulski said in that interview, look, they're going to spend over the cap again this year. They're, they're going to spend money. It's not as if they're in a completely different payroll bracket than some of the other big teams in the NHL. Tampa is. Like, Tampa's payroll is minuscule compared to the Yankees, the Red Sox, go down the list, you know, the Padres, the Dodgers in the National League, but they just always are competitive. They always find a way to win games. I know they haven't capped it off with a World Series, but their last decade-plus of success of winning games with the resources they have, it's incredible. I, I truly don't understand how they do it year after year after year. This is a team that... Uh... Less than a year ago, existed in a place where, how are you not letting Blake Snell continue in this game? Yep. Lose the series to the Dodgers. Okay, the big money Dodgers, fair enough. You were right there, but they're expected to win. No shame in that. You guys had a great run. Oh, oh, oh you're getting rid of Blake Snell. You're getting rid of this guy. Are you kidding me? Tampa Bay's going to do what Tampa Bay always does. Well, I guess it'll be somewhat of a step back. You know they'll be com- Nope, best record in the American League. Yeah, best, best record, record in the American, American League. League. It's crazy. It, it, and that's not the first time they've made a move like the Blake Stell deal, right? Like dealing a really good player who's kind of at their peak and everyone kind of shakes their head. But it always works for them. Well, and so back to my point about Tampa Bay. They've still got six games left to the Jays with the Tampa Bay Rays. Three at home, three on the road. And I remember some people last week, the week before, looking at Toronto's schedule and go, well, you know what, Tampa will be home and cool, so maybe those games don't mean as much. No, man. Tampa Bay could call up its double-A players, and they would find a way to win a bunch of those (laughs) games or be ultra-competitive in a bunch of those games. That's just how that organization rolls. There's no chill there. And you know what a house of horrors Tampa has been, specifically when they go on the road to play the Rays, right? You're exactly right. It could be the complete – it could be the C team, and and Jays fans would be, you know – nervous biting their fingernails if they if you're going into a must-win series in the trop it has been a nightmare down there for the jays it was such a great sporting weekend and part of the reason it was great for me greg you jump in here for just one second i know you're a big blue jays fan you're a massive baseball fan in general but greg this was the first weekend jamie you comment on after greg this is the first weekend where i was jumping around other channels what's happening with the red Sox and the rays okay the mariners are on tonight i've got to be sure i'm checking in on that game as well it felt real all of a sudden i've been doing that for a while i'm just baseball nut in general so I'm paying attention to all the scoreboards but yeah it's it's that extra time of year where you're just you're always having that app open on your phone just looking at the updated scores and seeing where the Jays are in that regard because you know a week and a half ago you guys the fan projection was five percent chance the Jays would make the playoffs it's up to 26 now there's a one in four chance essentially that the Jays make the playoffs if you run out the schedule so it's exciting now. It's officially a pennant race. 
And and I think, Malik, to your point, you know, the difference now is, okay, maybe you were checking scores a few weeks ago, but you felt kind of silly doing it, right? Because you knew what the chances were. You're like, ah, I guess I'll check what the score is, but who am I kidding? Now it doesn't feel silly. Now it feels legit to be checking in on what the other teams in the race are doing. It's often been debated about momentum in a sport like baseball. Well, these are individual events, and even if you get something going one night, that doesn't bleed into the next night. Listen, if this team continues to roll, you will be hard-pressed to convince me that that comeback win on Friday night, they were down 8-2, to two, they got six runs in the bottom of eight, they won it after getting three in the bottom of nine. That carried over into all of this, Jamie. The vibes got real, the Jays got hot. I, sorry, sign me up. That's where it really turned. Yeah, that's a great point, and I mean, that game was made you want to pull your hair out, right? Because it felt like such a such a summary of their season, right? With the incredible comeback, and then the bullpen gives up two runs in the in the top of the ninth. The fact that they are able to pull that game out, it did feel a little bit like, okay, okay, something's happening here. The bats are waking up. We know how good this offense can be when it's hot. Like, we've seen what Vladdy can do on a hot streak. We've seen what Marcus Simeon, Bo Bichette, go down the list, can do on a hot streak. The, the sky really is the limit for them if they get hot. We'll come back tomorrow. I'm not sure we can file that accomplishment under incredible, but we'll be back tomorrow. Roger Shergill will as well. He put together a fantastic program today. He produced this show. Excellent stuff. Big ups to you back at Mission Control. Greg, the boss is gone. We told you that. So it's Bick Nazar and Katie Caldwell all week long. Have a listen. Keep those texts coming in. 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Don't go anywhere. Bick and Katie, they're up next right here on your home of Canucks Hockey, Sportsnet 650.